Jim Irvin. Welcome along to another episode of Here's One I Made Earlier. Today we're discussing the often overlooked contribution made to great pop records by The Arranger. My guest today was a young rocker and cricket fan from Surrey who won a scholarship to Cambridge. He graduated in 1965 and came down to London to play jazz piano, but somehow ended up becoming one of the busiest arrangers in the world of pop, working over the years with Donovan, Hot Chocolate, Heat Wave, and many, many more, often in conjunction with prolific producer Mickey Most and his Rack label. In 1970, he formed a band, CCS, the Collective Consciousness Society, with a plan to marry the worlds of heavy rock and big band jazz. They enjoyed several hits, among them the track we'll be looking at in detail today, for many years the theme to Top of the Pops, my guest's bold arrangement of Led Zeppelin's Whole Lotta Love. He also worked at BBC Television on shows with Julie Felix and Bobby Gentry and the In Concert series. Then he started writing film music initially for Ken Loach, the movies Poor Cow, Kez and The Ruling Class. And then he formed his own jazz quartet with Tony Carr, Danny Thompson and Harold McNair and made some very highly regarded library music for KPM and Bruton Sound. If all that weren't enough, at the end of the 70s, he was approached to orchestrate an experimental stage musical by two Frenchmen, which eventually turned into the phenomenon that is Les Miserables, and he's worked on 30 different versions of that show in the decades since. It's a great pleasure to welcome John Cameron. Welcome, John. Thank you. Very good to hear you. Thank you. Good, good to hear you. Your career has gone all over the map in 50-something years, hasn't it? To what extent did you follow a plan? Were you looking to do all the things you've done, or did they all just arrive? My plan was to try to work as a musician for, for the next 60 years. Um, I, I, no, I never had a plan. Um, I did want to write movie music. Um, I was a great fan of Quincy Jones and Lalo Schifrin and those kind of jazz type of composers that was about the only thing that was in it was in the game plan everything else just happened now i suppose you were slightly influenced by the fact that both your parents were musicians weren't they yeah my, my dad was a fiddle player who played everything from mozart to stefan grappelli and uh, my mum was a dab hand with fat swallow tunes so yeah i grew up in a house that was always having music which was great what kind of music was were they playing then? What were you hearing? They they, they would play sort of popular stuff. Um, my mum would uh, uh, would play whatever was was around at the time if she could. I, I remember being in a music shop uh, when I was about eleven, and I was asking for Beethoven's uh, Opus Thirteen, uh, the Pathetique, and um, she said, "Have you got? I saw Mummy kissing Santa Claus," <laughs> and I I gave her the I looked daggers at her, and then I realised that kind of every time there was a party they they set to and played and everybody sang and they danced and i thought that might be a good idea so i set to to try and learn i think it was singing the blues the guy mitchell tommy Steele um oh, yeah. piece. that that was the start of it all that was all where where everything came from so those were the first glimmers of of rock and roll in britain weren't they sort of tommy Steele and that kind of thing what did that mean oh absolutely did that mean much to you were you into all that when it when it arrived Uh, yeah yeah about a year later i was i was doing holiday camp talent shows singing great balls of fire i think it was or and and i go ape yeah 
sort of dab hand with the piano and vocals. Luckily, my voice broke at about 11 and a half, so um, I could sing it in the right pitch. Oh, wow. Your parents were all right with rock and roll then? Did they like that as well? They actually, I think they were the only parents around that actually liked rock and roll. So um, that was fine, yeah, yeah. No problem at all. And when did your interest in jazz begin then? started to creep in, you know, my late teens and I started to listen to, to, to blues stuff and um, bands like Spencer Davis. Uh, I'd always listened to, you know, Little Richard type of bands and Fats Domino. But I think it was it was at uni I really got hooked into Art Blakey, Mingus, Monk, Ray Charles, Train, Dizzy, Bird, the, the whole enchilada. I, I used to write history essays till four in the morning with, with John Coltrane live at the Village Vanguard. They must have loved me in the, the rooms <laughs> adjoining. So you went up to Cambridge in 1962, didn't you? Now, yeah. You got a scholarship there. Was that a music scholarship or was it something No, it was, a, it was an exhibition in, in um, history. Okay. But the school I was at, sadly, um, couldn't teach me A-level music. So I, I took the Cambridge exams specialising in history. A year and a half into it, I, I realised that I was playing on American basses every um, couple of nights a week. I was playing at the jazz club. I was working as a pro musician during the long vacation, writing string quartets, writing for the Footlights with Eric Idle. You know, I was a musician. So I went to the master and said, do you think I could do finals in music? And he said, yes, why not? So I, I had a ball for, 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 a, for a year. Um, just, just writing. I had a really, really helpful um, music supervisor because I'd, I'd write, I'd write pieces that were halfway between Hindemith and Charlie Mingus, um, kind of strange brass and woodwind pieces. And he said, "Well, if you took that line you got up there on the clarinet and took it down and made it the bass line, would you think that might work better?" You know, and you go, "Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yes, I like that." A guy called Peter Trankel, he he had actually written some stuff for the West End, so. He was not precious about things. When I went to see David Wilcox, when I was had to be approved to take the course, he took one look at my portfolio and said, well, if, you, if you work terribly hard, you might get a third. Um, so that, that was red rags were bull. I, you know. There's nothing like encouragement, is there? Yeah, but uh, no, it's, it was great because there was so much going on in Cambridge. I, I learned a huge amount. I, I played with... People like Ron Ross and Danny Moss, Art Theme and Dick Extel Smith in one of the local jazz clubs. Not not the university one. That was that was dominated by uh, Lionel Grigson, John Hart, and um, Johnny Lynn, um, and they played very cerebral jazz. I, I played in the jazz club that played sort of ass kicking, um, shit kicking stuff. You know, we, we we really blew it away. So, yeah, it was great. So those, as you say, were very buzzy years at Cambridge, weren't they? And the footlights, the you mentioned him. Eric Idle was president, I think, for a while when you when you went there, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I was I was vice president. At, um, oh, were you? Yeah, yeah. And music director there. Who else was at Footlights at that period? Clive James was hanging about. Jermaine Greer was there. Um, th- there were people like um, Kerry Harrison and Richard Eyre. Um, incredible buzz where you'd say, what are you going to do when you go, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to direct plays, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write, I'm going to do this. I'm, and most of them did, you know, which was yeah. which was really kind of buzzy, as you say. And you hooked up with Eric when you uh, left Cambridge, didn't you? Yeah, he and I did a did a, a, a cabaret for a wee while. We, we, we did upstairs at the Royal Court and things like that. But at the same time, I was desperate to, 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 to get into 
the music side of things. And I got spotted by David Frost, who recommended me to a supper club called Take One, where I did a jazz cabaret uh, with uh, the band was was Ronnie Ross, Bill Lesage, Art Ellison, I think it was, certainly Tony Carr and Spike Heatley. It was one night there that, that Spike came in and said, look, my old mate, um, Ashley Kozak's is Donovan's manager and he's looking for a new arranger. Do you fancy doing some? That was it. Spike and I did um, Sunshine Superman between us. I never looked back after that. Sunshine came softly through my What did that entail, arranging Sunshine Superman, then? How did that work? Basically, um, Don would play us the piece, and we'd, we'd think, you know, what, what, what kind of lineup would would suit this? And we talked about slide guitars. Uh, and the big riff at the start, we really wanted that to be different. And, of course, it's pre-synthesizers, pre-anything. We had to be a bit kind of imaginative, because Don's stuff wasn't, regular rock and roll and it wasn't folky and it wasn't it, it, it was somewhere in the middle of everything so we decided that to, to give it real impact we'd, we'd use not just bass uh we'd use bass and bass guitar so that was spike heatley and john paul jones the, the other big sound would be um harpsichord we, we we brought in a double keyboard morley harpsichord which gave it that enormous impact on the opening Mm. And then later on, Jimmy Page put the guitar solo on. The concept was the most important thing there. The next, the next single I did with, with Don was Jennifer Juniper, and that was a question of saying, "Look, how are we going to express this rather, rather lightweight, pretty song without it losing its character?" And um, uh, that's when we decided to use oboe and bassoon and harp, um, stand-up bass, and just shaker. No um, drums on that one. Uh, in fact, that that was the quickest record I think I ever made because Mickey phoned me up on a Tuesday and said, Don's got something he wants to um, record. I went to see him and we talked about it and we decided on the lineup. Uh, we went in on the Friday um, to Kingsway, I think it was, with, with just a little lineup. Um, and on Sunday, it was on Radio Luxembourg. <laughs> There's no hanging about, you know, four-month four mixes and things, you know. How much um, say did Donovan himself have in those sounds? Because you were shaping the mood of his career for a few years to come there, weren't you? Yes. Um, the, he he had a feeling of what he wanted, but I think a, a lot of it came from me having written woodwind stuff up in Cambridge and coming up with ideas. Don was always sort of ready for anything and ready to try things. It was a question of balancing between Mickey, who wanted to make sure it was just commercial as possible, and Don, who, you know, wanted to make sure it was as artistic and or as true as possible to his artistic thing. Um, and I was kind of juggling in the middle. You spend a lot of time really trying to double think what, what the two of them 
are, are wanting and make it something that they both like. Now, it's it's these days it's considered to be one of the very first psychedelic records, isn't it? It's certainly considered the first psychedelic record to get to number one in America. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. did that come into the conversation? Was there any talk of it having... Uh, sort of trendy pot smoking vibes about it, or was that not in your head at all? Not, not really. Um, I, 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 I never got into all that bit. Um, I, I did once have a hash brownie at a party unwittingly, uh, <laughs> and felt awful for about three hours afterwards. I'd grown up knowing a lot of jazz musicians and seeing a lot of the casualties for for drug use that you know really great players that that were ruined by it so I, I tended to not blank it out but it wasn't part of my thinking but at the same time the imagery that he he was using um i had to respond to that i, I think uh, it's the imagery more than the the what was in the back of it that, that i was responding to arranging for pop music wasn't something anyone was teaching was it and, it, no. it, and there weren't many pe- that many people doing it were there so it was just a trial and error job, was it? Learning as you went. I'd done two Footlight shows where I did all the arrangements in 64 and 65. I, I worked with the Ronnie Rand and the Blue Rockets for two seasons in, in Jersey and then for the Colin Hume Band in in, um, in Birmingham. And I used to write arrangements for them. So I'd, I'd, I'd had quite a bit of practice before I went up to Cambridge. So by the time I came down... I, I was an opinionated little long-haired git, you know. Um, <laughs> I thought I knew everything. In the 60s, if if you thought you knew everything and could get away with it. Yeah. and Confidence was king, wasn't it? Yeah, confidence was king, totally. When we met before, you told me a, lo- a very interesting thing about we used to do summer seasons when you were younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you said that the music completely changed between the summer of 62 and the summer of 63. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, describe that. Yeah. The summer of 62, um, when the band needed a break, the rhythm section stayed on and we played waltzes. The next year, we had a guitar player in the band. Um, and when it came to the band all taking a break, we played Beatles numbers. So it went from waltzes to Merseybeat in in one year? In 12 months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. It really shows shows the way that everything suddenly happened. And that also points towards there must have been panic in the in the live music business as everyone had to switch up what they were doing and, and, and the big bands were starting to see some writing on the wall, I'd imagine, that, that by that point. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's the economics that happens to everything. It's, it's a bit like happening has been happening in theatres um, since technology has meant that you don't need a 25-piece orchestra, you can do it with 14. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, the writing was on the wall in those days because I think I think the, the, the big bands, I, I love the big bands, but they, they had sort of had their day and suddenly all the energy was in pop music and, and a lot of musicians were moving into that kind of blood, sweat and tears, earth, wind and fire area where, where, where they felt more, more to say, I suppose. Tell me about Mickey Most. How did he operate at that point? Mickey was a great kind of, I suppose, entrepreneur. He was one of the few producers that you could take a song to on guitar. I mean, everybody went in with fully orchestrated or, you know, with a full rhythm section or mm. this kind of thing. Mickey Mickey could tell from you playing it on the guitar or the piano or whatever, whether it's going to work or not. And then he would bring in an arranger, whether it's me or John Paul Jones, 
he would often pick the rhythm section that he wanted to use with it. We sort of developed a modus operandi more with hot chocolate than with Don. Mickey and I used to get the rhythm track that Errol would put down and with a vocal on it, and we'd play it, and, and we'd sing riffs at each other. It was quite, I mean, if anybody had seen this, I think they'd have thought we were crazy. And, you know, how about this? Yeah, that's, you know, what, and, and just chuck ideas backwards and forwards. Yeah. I then went and wrote it, and we, we'd, we'd get in a string section or a brass section or whatever and play it and then usually mickey would say that bit you've got in the third chorus i'd like to put it on the second chorus and that bit you've got at the start i want to put it on the fade out and the the string players used to say why don't you write these on velcro then we could move them around (laughs) (laughs) so that's interesting so he he was he'd been a singer himself hadn't he so is that why he understood the the value of a song just hearing it he just had the knack of finding songs that um that were you know, hit the zeitgeist with the public. I don't quite know where you get that knack from, but um, he had it. He, he was the sort of guy that puts together a good team, taking a song, taking an artist, putting it together with the right rhythm section, the right studio, the right players, the right arranger. Um, he was almost like a film producer. You mentioned John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page, the, the session world at that time. So this was your first taste of it. Um, yeah. How did it develop for you? How quickly did other work come in? And, and you know, what was the sort of uh, the speed of it all at, at that point? Well, at first, because Don was um, in some kind of dispute here with his record company. It was Pi, wasn't it? it was, yeah, that's right. Um, it couldn't come out. It was number one in the States, but nobody knew about it. So I didn't get any other work much at all and i had to go back to watford palace theater and do pantomime uh, wow <laughs> well i had a number one in the states it's quite bizarre having a number one record in america with your very first arrangement is quite an achievement really <laughs> yeah it was I, I didn't realize it at the time but yes it was <laughs> no. <laughs> now i absolutely love the the british sunshine superman which I, I, is an amalgam of two albums isn't it the mellow yellow album and, that's and, right and, yeah. the, and sunshine superman that came out in the states on epic but the pie version is like a kind of best of those two two records and is fantastic and the thing that really entranced me when i listened to it as a kid was just all these this choice of instrumentation it seemed incredibly uh um bold and and original you know even up against the the beatles records and things that were were coming out at the same time yeah i th- i think we felt the you know we were in competition in a way you know that that, that we wanted to do something that somebody else had never done. I also I used a lot of jazz players who, who, who were very flexible, so we could adapt to the the folky rock thing with, without having to write it all down. And I could give people suggestions, and they would mould to what we were doing. I, I think that that was the, the secret on it. And they were they, they were very fast in those days. We, we didn't spend hours and months in the studio like the Beatles did. It was it was in and out. I think think it was a very spontaneous kind of setup. So it would be a typical three-hour session would it to record a, oh, yeah. a single yeah. for dawn yeah yeah absolutely uh, you, in fact you get two or three numbers in a, a three-hour session usually uh, unless it was a specific one like jennifer juniper but no <laughs> mickey didn't want to waste time and money and you know <laughs> you had your number one in america and you went off and did pantomime but sometime <laughs> about around about here you started doing tv stuff didn't you yes um uh, I started doing some stuff with Julie, and then and then Julie got approached. Julie by, Felix, is Julie this. Felix, yeah. yeah. 
by Stanley Dorfman um, to do Once More with Felix. And she took me with her, um, you know, as her music director and I did all the charts and conducted the band. And we had an uncanny uncanny knack that um, Julie's a typical folk singer. She'll, she'll suddenly cut half a bar and jump in on the chorus. I had a string section that would go, whoops, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> they could keep up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, they, they, they knew the foibles of it, the, the whole thing. And then that led to the Bobby Gentry series, um, and that was a blast. I think I learned a huge amount about arranging from that because she came over with um, really – um, good arrangements she 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 brought in. You know, I, I I learned from what came over with her and started to adapt it and started to work in that same same way. So she's she's entered into the realms of myth now, Bobby Gentry, because she hasn't done anything since I know yes. the early seventies. So t- t- tell me a bit about her because was she as in control as the legend oh, totally. has, has it? Yeah, yeah. No, she knew. It, I mean, she was a superb musician. Played really good sort of folk guitar on this little three-quarter Martin that she had. She'd worked with really good arrangers like Jimmy Haskell um, over in the States, knew what she wanted. Was a, You know, she she was sort of like, she was Dolly Parton before Dolly Parton almost, i.e. she managed herself. She looked after her own publishing. And she she was very hands-on and she, she she knew exactly what, what she wanted and she was, because of that, she was actually great to work with, because I could I could be creative back because she had no insecurities. Did you not work on any of the albums? I thought your name was on. Is it I'm on Fancy. Yeah, yeah I, I did do I, I did do some stuff with with or Patchwork. With her, yeah. Was it Fancy? Yeah, or some patchwork? of the Patchwork. Ones. Patchwork, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about you, John, is that whenever I pick up a record that I like the sound of, I look on the back, and inevitably your name's on there. So it's <laughs> <laughs> very kind of you. <laughs> But it's one of those things that all through my life, I went, oh, this is interesting. Who's involved in this? John Cameron. I've heard of him before. What is he? Oh, yeah, he's the guy on Sunshine. You know, it just kept, that just kept happening. Um, yeah. And, I mean, how many of you were there at that time? How many pop arrangers were working in the in the business when, when you were at your peak? I think, I mean, as I say, John Paul Jones was, was, was around before he became a Led Zepp. I mean, mm. he, he did... He did the arrangement on Mellow Yellow and was doing stuff for Mickey. Uh, Mike Vickers was probably the, the, the other most notable arranger, um, and he he did a huge amount of work. I was in the studio with Francois Hardy, I, I suppose probably because of the, the Donovan, Julie Felix sort of thing. With Serge Gainsborough, we played this, this stuff down, and he, he said, oh, I, I don't like that flute, take that out. And then, oh, I don't like that guitar line, take that out. Oh, I don't like. And I put up with it for one number, and I think I got halfway through the second number. I said, "You don't need me. I'm going." And I walked out. I really felt terrible. And then, I f- then I found out that Mike Vickers had done exactly the same thing the night before. <laughs> How funny! Yeah. How strange! Yeah. It was one of those things. You think, why do you hire an arranger if you? take everything he's written out of the piece. You know? I, I, I had such a good working relationship with all the other guys I worked with. It was, it was just, it was bizarre. But, but, uh, but I suppose go. that that's the way it was done then, wasn't it? I mean, you, those kind of artists would need an arranger or an orchestrator of some sort. 
just as, as a matter of course, wouldn't they? And, uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. And, yes. and then he—that is his the way his brain is working. He's thinking, well, I, uh, yes, that doesn't fit the mood. Let's take that away. And he's left with the, the skeleton of something, but it's yeah. exactly what he wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about the sort of atmosphere in the session world. When we spoke uh, once before, you told me there used to be this troop of string players that went everywhere on motorbikes. Is that correct? Yeah, I get yeah, that? absolutely. It's Pat Hallings. Pat, Pat was the was the lead violin on on the the filmed um, version of All You Need Is Love. You know the Beatles number. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, that went out. Was it New Year's Eve or something like yes. that? Anyway, um, Pat from the Bobby Gentry show onwards was my string leader, and he did everything. He had a motorbike, and so did most of his crew. So that yes, that th- those were the people. He, he was on the "You Sexy Thing," all the heatwave stuff, "Always and Forever," etc., 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 and 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 all my movies. So yeah, Pat and I go back a long way. But that image of this, these people—they're so busy they have to cross town on motorbikes. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was lunatic in in the late sixties and early seventies. We just didn't stop working. Um, and be, I suppose because um, it was pre pre synthesizers and samples and all that kind of thing, um, it, it, people just had to record and record and record and record, you know. And it was a uh, it was a, it was a very buoyant industry at the time. We were working on with, with 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 rock bands, with folk bands, with sort of jazz outfits, and just just you never quite knew from one month to the next what you were going to do, which is very exciting. CCS, the Collective Consciousness Society, was a massive 25-piece jazz rock congregation that released three albums and a string of hit singles between 1970 and 1973, the first of which was John's loud swinging big band arrangement of Led Zeppelin's Whole Lotta Love, a song that was less than a year old at the time, but had been a hit all around the world, though Zeppelin had refused to sanction its release on 45 in Britain. It rose to number 13 in the UK and made waves in the US too, but wasn't quite as big a hit there as sales were split by a similar cover version recorded by sax player King Curtis. Apart from giving Whole Lotta Love a crack at the singles chart, CCS acted as a kind of joyful refuge and meeting place for the cream of contemporary British jazz and session musicians who could let their hair down during the recordings and then race to the pub in the breaks. Last one there getting the round in apparently, which must have been cripplingly expensive considering the size of that band. A few years later, the track was selected by BBC producers as the new theme tune for Top of the Pops, and John Cameron was commissioned to re-record it for a new broadcast version. A bit of a mixed blessing, as it meant he saw no further royalties from the track during its decade as the show's theme tune. So tell me how you got the idea for CCS. By, by 1970, with all these folkies, which were lovely, I mean, and, and I loved working with Julie and with, with Bobby and, and all, all the other sort of related acts that we got involved in. But my kind of psyche was crying out to do something that was in-your-face, hard-nosed, jazz funk <laughs> in, in character. I wasn't sure what, but I, I saw the Don Ellis band at Ronnie's, which was, um, was a big brass section, double rhythm section, playing impossible time sequences. They, they said, we're going to play this number in 13, and he t- counted it in. It was like, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, pow! <laughs> and and so I, I, actually, I, I went to, Wayne Bickerton um, was interested in doing it for DRAN, but um, his boss, Dick Rowe, said no. 
So I was routinely with Mickey, um, six numbers for Mary Hopkin for Eurovision. I mean, it's <laughs> wonderfully ironic, this whole thing. And we reached the end of it. And he said, so, so what else is new? Uh, and I said, well, I've got this idea for a band. I described the Don Ellis band, but I said, you know, not quite so jazz orientated, more, more funk, more in your face, this, that and the other. And he said, I like the sound of that. I've, I've just signed Alexis Corner and Pete Thorup. Um, do you think we could involve them? So we met up, started to talk about stuff. I'd come up with the name, the Collective Consciousness Society, a phrase I stole from Carl Jung, who I'd read in Cambridge. And the more we talked about it, it, it chimed in with what Alexis and Pete felt about music, because it was an attempt to fuse all the different things that affected us, starting with jazz, bop, funk, blues, folk, flamenco. The, 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 there's a piece on it called Dos Cantos, which is, is very much in, in, in the vibe of uh, Lorca and Duende and all that kind of wonderful flamenco stuff. It was also an attempt to free up musicians. Yeah. So first on recordings, then on TV and movies, I'd been using jazz musicians with perhaps not such rigid discipline, but with an ability to interpret, improvise, reinterpret. Harold McNair, Ron Ross, Tony Coe, Danny Moss, Les Condon, Spike Heatley, Tony Khan, Danny Thompson. On the CCS sessions, there was a feeling of freedom. We tried different solos, different sounds, different ways of playing. And the arrangements were not regular big band charts with loads of chordal passages. They were much more contrapuntal with trumpet lines freewheeling around trombone figures, trading riffs with the saxophones, very much like an enlarged Charlie Mingus band, but all over a driving double rhythm section. Alan Parker on guitar, Herbie and Spike on bass guitar and bass, Barry Morgan and Tony Carr on drums, and either Bill Lesage or Jim Lawless on percussion. And... I played keyboards, usually a Wurlitzer piano played through a massive Leslie speaker. So knowing you had that kind of all-star lineup at your disposal, um, how did you go about selecting the material for the record then? The material on the album, we, 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 we went for all kinds of things, like um, Boom Boom, which was the double A side with Whole Lot of Love, the John Lee Hooker song. Wade in the Water, which was on the on a Johnny Griffin Big Soul Band record, but I put it into seven and thirteen. Living in the past, which which we actually speeded up because we felt it needed more drive, and some numbers that I I wrote that like Dos Cantos, the the, the Spanish type thing, and a couple of songs that Pete and Alexis wrote were, that we hoped would reflect this kind of all embracing musical vision, if you like. Double A side with with Boom Boom was something that Mickey wanted to throw into the pot, 
Um, we went along with it because it's got, you know, one of the governor riffs. Um, but what I wanted to do, where Zeppelin, after the statement of the song, just goes all abstract and strange noises and vocal noises and, and a, a, a sort of rhythm section feel, we go into the street. And I wanted to recreate that buzz that you got from film scores like Quincy Jones, um, Lala Schifrin's and Oliver Nelson's TV writing. And in fact, to, to do that, we started slower and less frantic, more of a funk groove. This obviously leads into Harold's Roland Kirk style flute. I always loved Roland Kirk when I was at university. Then when I found that Harold McNair played um, jazz flute in that style, I was oh, I, I was totally taken. He's in my band forever, sort of thing. You know? <laughs> um, once he stated it, the trombone dancer, we build up, we hit a double tempo. The cowbell is leading it, as you <laughs> mentioned last time we spoke. The trom trombones and the timps answer gets it gets into a kind of abstract movie score mode with variations on the theme and uh, on 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 the brass and backwards and forwards between the brass and percussion. But it builds up to the brass stabs and the sax sections, um, which is a huge sort of which um, we, we, we once did a, a workshop for, for school musicians, uh, I think it was North London Schools Jazz Band or whatever, uh, and I took along some CCS charts. And the, 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 the kids were great and they you know, played everything, but there was something like 10 saxophone players. So when it got to that bit, to hear 10 saxophones doing <laughs> absolute magic. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, just talking of sax. Pete King was on the record as well, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Pete King was on it. Yeah. Which yeah. I'd I was, forgotten about. And uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. Harry Beckett was on it. Um, Greg Bowen, Tony Fisher. I mean, the, uh, Don Lusher, Bill Geldon. There was, there was some amazing players. Um, all over it, you know. As I say, it was almost like we, we were setting them free. I know it wasn't particularly, you know, avant-garde jazz that they might have wanted to play, but it, it was giving these guys a, a, a bit of a free reign on the way they played it. And and I think it's that freedom that, that comes through in, 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 in listening to it now, 50 years later. You know. There was a sense that the jazz scene was in a state of some distress at that point in time, wasn't it? Because yeah. the, the whole 60s thing, the Beatles, had really changed the, the nature of homemade jazz in, in particular, like where it could play. Like all the clubs changed over to beat clubs, didn't they? And, and, and a lot. They did a bit, yeah. And um, I, I know um, I was reading about Tubby Hayes, you know, and he couldn't even get a gig at Ronnie Scott's place at that point. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The Bull at Barnes was a kind of haven. Yeah. Um, I went. I saw Tubby play there quite a few times. I sat in once, once or twice. And Harold used to play there a, a great deal. Um, but yeah, the, 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 it was few and far between. As you, as you say, once you got outside Ronnie's, there wasn't there wasn't a lot going on. Let's go back to a whole lot of love. You had another crack at it on the next record, didn't you? You did a rock and roll medley around it. Oh yeah, we did. That was just a sort of yeah bit of fun mickey always liked like to see how, how the band would would cope with nice big old driving rock and roll numbers so that that was for mickey the one that i loved the, the, i think on, i think he was on the set now was was um 
our arrangement of Black Dog, the Zeppelin number, because it had sort of an impossible feel riff into it, which I, I thought the rhythm section played with such panache. I loved it. But... Now, of course, um, Whole Lot of Love had only been out about a year by the time you cut your version, so I suppose that meant you didn't feel it was so sacred you couldn't fiddle with it. Is that right? Um, I never thought anything was so sacred that you couldn't <laughs> fiddle with it. I, mean, I, I, I never liked the, 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 the phrase cover. I mean, you know, as a song, it's a song, and how you interpret it, you know, whether you do it as a, a blues, a, a jump number, a hard bop number or whatever, it's, it's up to you. So the idea of, of oh, you can't change it because that's – I mean, I've, I, I've, I've had a situation, for instance, where I wrote a kind of bossa nova type number that Scylla recorded called uh, Sweet Inspiration. Um, and somebody told me that Tony McCauley had grabbed hold of it and turned it into a Northern Soul number with, with Johnny Johnson and the bandwagon. And I was dead pleased because – He'd seen something in it that I hadn't seen. Yeah, yeah. So I, to, to me, that's an arranger's job. You, 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 you have the imagination to take something and put it in a whole different ball game. You know. Tony McCauley was saying to me, there would be moments where he didn't really know whether the song they'd written was any good until the full musicians played it and yeah. and the chorus came up and he said there was yeah. occasionally there'd be this awful moment he called it going down in the studio where <laughs> where the chorus would kick in and he'd go oh no it's no good I wouldn't never mind yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lunch yeah. tell me a bit about the sort of whole vibe around around rack because obviously then Mickey after this was was you were working for him with uh, hot chocolate and uh, yeah. and then there was chinny chap going on wasn't there with, oh, with yeah. racy and mud and um there was... Oh, it was it was a mini tin pan alley in a way um yeah he, he, he had these little teams working um i mean rack when we we, we did the early donovan stuff everything was either done at um uh, uh, sort of kingsway studios or emi3 or or two and then, then Mickey got this mobile. I forget who he who bought it from, which was fine. Um, but I used to get a phone call on a Sunday afternoon. I'm bored. Will you come and do some overdubs? So <laughs> I drive over to, to um, his place in Totteridge, and we sit outside. You know, very expensive house with a with a mobile sitting outside. <laughs> playing in synthesizer parts and God knows what else. That drove him into buying and building Rack Studios. When you were working with Hot Chocolate, that was just a natural progression, was it? Mickey said, oh, I've, I've signed this band and can you get involved? Yeah. Um, Emmeline was the first one I did with him, yeah. He, I, I think he felt by then I'd, I'd, I'd proved my funk chops, if you like, and yeah. come in and have a look, have a listen to, this, to these guys. I can't count the number of singles that we did together in about three or four albums, which is great. And it was, it was nice because Errol was such a joy to work with. You know, he just was the, the nicest guy in the world. You know, how did it work? Would they sort of record a rhythm section, or, or yeah? And, and so you weren't necessarily saying telling them what to play on the guitar, but you no, were. No, no, no. You were adding stuff to what they, the basic stuff that they'd done. No, it? Harvey, the guitar player, was very inventive. He 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 often. He, he would often come up with a nice riff that I would develop and put on the strings or whatever, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah they, 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 would, um, they would put the rhythm section together. They would 
do a full recording or just a demo? Where what would you be arranging? No, from? No, no, this would be a rhythm section ready to use because yeah. we would then work on top of it. Yeah, we we we'd discuss: do we put strings on this one, or should we just put brass on? Um, and I would quite often decorate it a little with. I had a, a ARP twenty six hundred synthesizer. I had specially chopped and uh, amended to, to to give me wonderful big bass end sounds. And we used to put bottom end into the track. Um, I, a lot of those hot chocolate records, if you listen to the, the, the kind of the one on it, it's got a huge depth to it. Now that 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 was synthesizer overdubs and and and, and little little kind of pickups of, of of bass figures that we wanted to just accentuate. So that's that's almost just just like kind of highlighting things. And then of course. You know, we'd go in with the string section. Um, and as a, you know, I always remember Mickey on You Sexy Thing saying, play it with a smile on your face, guys. And they did, you know. Tell us something about to Put Your Love in Me then, because that's a favourite of mine and is, uh, I think, a famously peculiar choice for a single. You know, it's like five minutes long, it's very yeah. slow, it's very I know. Uh, spooky. <laughs> um, uh, what was the thinking behind that one? I'm not sure. We, this was part of the, the album that we did with the GX1, which was this massive synthesizer. It was a prototype that Yamaha built basically to experiment with certain things. Keith Emerson had one, uh, Stevie Wonder had one, and we had one. Some of the some of the characteristics and some of the things it could do never made it onto the one you buy and stick in your front room. The start of Everyone's a Winner, the keyboard that goes, da that's me with the keyboard actually vibrating it to the left. <laughs> I've, there's never been a keyboard that does this, but it gave you this 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 amazing kind of control it yourself vibrato feel. You know, you could you could wobble the whole keyboard, could you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. Just by doing that, what we what we did with that whole album was we started off with the GX one and built up the sound design, if you like, with it. All, all those big phasey quasi string sounds that's all on the gx1 and then added real strings to it to to, to just give it the life and, and and the bit in the middle where it suddenly goes that, that that was real strings it was very much built up in the studio with mickey and then added to um with with, with the live musicians but mm. i remember sitting there and actually having to have a conversation with this large machine because um, it gets terribly lonely when you're out there for three hours at a time with, <laughs> with all this technology. <laughs> now, that was the synthesizer that Stevie Wonder used on um, Songs in the Key of Life, wasn't it? It probably was, yes. Yeah, so it's got those fantastic um, pastime paradise string sounds. Yeah. Um, and it, in those days, that was state of the art. They, everyone thought that was real strings, didn't they, when they first heard it? It, it had an authenticity to it, which we would sort of marvel at now we couldn't believe that people thought that was real but i i know no i know at, at one point people thought wow this is you're never going to get any better than this <laughs> <laughs> i know now i bought a selena string machine um and i used to say oh it's like real strings it comes in late yeah <laughs> <laughs> not my string players but most string players always used to, you know. <laughs> so um you ended up writing film scores as well didn't you for ken loach poor cow the ruling class kez um how did that come about but how did you get involved in writing for film 
I had no idea how to write film music. When I got asked to do Poor Cow in the studio, you know, who, who's actually going to score it? And Don points to me and says, he is. Uh, okay, can you get it ready for a week tomorrow? Because that's when we're dubbing it. Yes, I said. You know, bullshit, bullshit. Rushed home and phoned up um, Elizabeth Lutchins, who did horror films uh, for Hammer. She she was like a contemporary music writer. Her music kind of went... I know, I know her stuff. She's great. Uh, Yeah, it's it's some amazing stuff. And I phoned her up because I had met her through through my dad here. Her her aunt taught my dad fiddle. So I phoned her up. I said, Elizabeth, um, how do you write film music? (laughs) (laughs) So she gave me a quick 10-minute over the phone, made some notes. (laughs) We spotted it on... Thursday, I got the timings on the Friday. I was playing rugby on the Saturday. So I wrote it on the Sunday. It was copied on the Monday. We recorded it Tuesday, straight to film, of course. And it was dubbed on Wednesday. And then I found out that it's actually quite complicated writing film music. (laughs) (laughs) Your KPM music and stuff you did with Bruton as well is trendy again, isn't it? So So I gather. um, Those albums get reissued. Tell me about making that, that stuff. Were you invited to do it or was that something you sought to do because it, you knew the money was good? Or I got into it because the uh, song publisher who published If I Thought You'd Ever Change Your Mind and Sweet Inspiration and a few other things was Jimmy Phillips at uh, Peter Morris Music, which was allied with KPM in Denmark Street. Um, now, part of the, their setup was Jimmy Phillips' son, Robin Phillips, who ran KPM library music um and at first um, i have to admit i was a bit sniffy about library music in in the early 60s it, it was elevator music mood music you know robin kind of got hold of it and with writers like keith mansfield um and i think um hawk was there Alan hawkshaw and and brian bennett were around at the time started to drag it kicking and screaming into the 1960s and make it much more relevant about the time when when Keith wrote things like the Mash of the Day theme, you know, the, the yeah. stuff that is still around now. And I thought, well, actually, it's, this sounds like, um, you know, it, it's starting to be much more interesting. And, and I started to work with him around about the time we were doing CCS. And what I used to do is go to Robin and say, look, we just got this album out called, um, you know, CCS album. Uh, everybody's going to want a big band library music. So, rather than them ripping us off, why don't we rip ourselves off, if you like? Yes. <laughs> why don't we do the big band library music? So we did, and um, and, and we did stuff with, with um, uh, Tony Carr and Harold and, and Danny, jazz rock stuff, African ethnic music, but funky, if you yeah. like. Sort of Afro-rock, um, wasn't it? Afro, that's right. Afro-rock was one of them. Or sometimes I'd, I'd say, look, I've just done this, done this movie score out out in Germany, which was all spies and this kind of thing. How about we do some spy library music? So you know that that that's sort of how it all happened. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, as you say, suddenly find people sampling it and playing it and talking about it. I mean, when we did the um, we did a concert at the British Library, we'd done about three or four with the the, the KPM All Stars. The last one we did was at the uh, British Library with about a thousand people there, and they all knew every damn track everybody had written. I mean, a thousand geeks coming up to you and saying, "Oh, I want to shake your hands and can I have, have a selfie?" And and I love this such and such. And you go and you you you, you think, "Oh, yeah, I, can't, I think I remember that one." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and Liquid Sunshine itself was was used uh, has been used a lot, been sampled a lot, hasn't it? What was yeah, the, yeah. the thing you were telling me about? That oh, like whoa, Logic's like whoa. Okay, was, yeah, was the one where it's yeah, but it's I think I'm not sure if it's Commons used it. I, I know CeeLo Green used it, but unfortunately he put it on a free download, so we didn't get anything from that. <laughs> yeah, that, that old excuse. That old excuse, yes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, your work with Heatwave. I think one of the great pop arrangements of all time is Boogie Nights. How did you get involved in in that one? I got pulled in um, by Barry Blue to, to meet Rod Temperton. Rather like Bobby Gentry, Rod knew chapter and verse what he wanted, which was great to work with. So he 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 put down most of the rhythm section stuff with with, with Barry and, and and the band. He wanted a weird intro to it kind of was floaty and film-like and so we came up with the idea of the harp and the string thing that then eventually kicks into the to the main theme and the funny thing was that the record company here was fine with it but the record company in the states decided that it would never get any radio play so they cut that whole intro and and it didn't sell a bloody thing (laughs) <laughs> so they put the intro back on and suddenly it was top 10 you know? wow from this side of the pond that record sounds incredibly american doesn't it i think it did at the time yes i, th- I think they were intending to but there's no coincidence that uh, rod got snapped up by quincy and i think yeah. a couple of the guys in the band were american i mean johnny wilder was american i think you're absolutely right hot chocolate was very much a British black band, whereas Heatwave was felt like felt like it came from Detroit or Chicago. Just the way the record was mixed, it felt very authentic. Yeah, if you like, Bar- Bar- Barry Blue did a great job on those first two two albums. When you get a job like arrange Boogie Nights, what it, how long does it take? Where, where do you do it? Probably write a couple of arrangements a day, so an album would take me, you know, a couple of weeks maybe. How would you do it? How does an arranger in that period? work you've got a piano you've got yeah I'd, I'd have a top line from them and I, I'd, I'd have a rhythm section to rhythm track to work to and i'd get out the manuscript paper and on top it said flute oboe clarinet or two trumpets and whatever go whatever lineup we decided strings and i'd i'd write it in and i'd send it to the copyist he would he would write the parts we'd we'd take it into the studio with a with a band put it in front of them and the brass players would go what <laughs> I just think of writing things go and I go oh thanks John <laughs> cheers for that yes, yeah. but it was yeah. a sort of competition with people like Earth, Wind and Fire to, to, to write the most complicated brass <laughs> were you writing those arrangements in your head or were you working it all out on piano I, I'll, I'll look at something with the piano but essentially I'll, I'll just sit down and write it um, even now, I, yeah. work, I work on computer all the time, but even that is straight onto the page. And I tend to write lines as if I'm improvising them. Was that good for you when the computers came in? Because you can, on a computer, you can write on the score and then hear it back, can't you? That, well, I tell you what, what it really does. It, it helps you to decide on texture, yeah. especially with a movie, something on a movie or, or for, for a, a musical. You can put it up there and you think, yeah, it's a bit too dense. Or it needs more bottom end, or it, you know, you can try things. You know, you think, I wonder what would happen if, and so you write a line and you put it on the computer and you play it back and go, 
Yeah, but it it does give you another tool in your armory. Um, it's it's very useful. If you're used by the technology, you just sort of play it in and hope for the best. You're not getting the most out of it. If you can use the technology and still be musical, it's a fabulous tool. Tell us a bit before we go about Les Miserables. How did that come about? Mickey's sub-publisher in Paris was Alain Boublé. Um, and Alan, Alan had said to Mickey, we've got this, this concept. Uh, we want an arranger who's worked in, who, who has a cinematic feel, but has also worked in rock and pop and whatever. It, it has to be contemporary. And so I got on a plane to Paris um, and I sat with them and they played me everything on, on, on a cassette. Claude Michel murdering pianos and impersonating the whole of Paris. Um, <laughs> uh, all in French, of course. This is 1979. And I, I got on the plane and I remember thinking, I think I said yes. But the children need shoes. We'll give it a go. Yeah. But as I, as I sort of drove up and down St Albans in, with, with a cassette in the car... This realization came over me that yeah, this is real French bullshit, but it's great French bullshit. You know, if you're going to have something that is like unashamedly as dramatic as this, whoa, come on, let's go with it. You know, and we then planned to make a, a concept album, which we we were going to make in London and in Paris. And in fact, um, I worked out. Two budgets, one one with about a forty-piece orchestra where we could do it in a comfortable style, and one with about a sixty-odd piece where we'd really have to shift like hell to do it. And they said, "Well, which one would you prefer?" And I said, "I'll go for the sixty-piece because I'd I'd worked a lot of stuff in the states, and I I was very used to cutting the cloth right down to the the, the very last inch of the session, if you like." And I said, "We'll go for the sixty one. Well, we'll go like hell on it." And we did. The album was very successful over there. And from that, we did we did the um, production at the Palais de Sport, which was a boxing arena, a four and a half thousand seater, which they sold out for a hundred performances. They, they even sold the seats you couldn't see from. But it had to come off because it was being followed by the Russian State Circus in this huge <laughs> arena. So it, it kind of died and never went anywhere until... This, the story is that Cameron found it in a record shop, the, the, the album, in in um, Paris, took it home and liked it and said, he said to me, what do you think of this Les Mis thing? And I said, well, I, I think it's potentially, uh, you know, as, as it could be as big as West Side Story. It's got that sort of breadth to it. I wish I'd have put, put money on it, you know. <laughs> and next thing I know, the, the Trevor Nunn's got involved, John Caird. You know, the whole RSC team with John Napier, David Hersey, the whole machine started to go. The funny thing is that, that um, on opening night, I, you've probably heard the story, but um, we didn't get that good um, reviews. And in fact, um, they were all sitting um, with the De Winters people, the, 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 the publicity people, apparently having having the, the sort of a bit of a wake of a lunch after the reviews had come out. And somebody came in and said, um, I've got the box office figures. And we were absolutely flooded with box office. So suddenly it was a hit, whatever the papers said. Wow. And so that was just word of mouth, was it? That was just everyone? That yeah. Was... yeah. We'd, we'd had a couple of weeks of, of, of um, um, 
previews. Had a couple of, a couple of weeks of previews. On the very first preview, I was I was up on the sound desk with Maddie, the sound operator, and she was still learning the show. We you know we we hadn't really done it all that many times for her to learn the show. So I was there saying, French horn's coming in here and look out for the flute and all that sort of thing. <laughs> and towards the end, when, when Jean Valjean's on, on his own and singing, you know, a reprise of Bring Him Home, she started rushing up and down the board with the WD-40. And I said, well, what's up, Maddie? And she said, I've got noise in the, in the channels and I can't get rid of it. It's sort of like white noise. And we turned around. The, the, the sound desk was on the um, grand circle, just up from the stalls. And we realised that what it was was the entire audience was sniffing into their handkerchiefs. And there's this white noise. And we thought, we've done something right here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. That's so, funny. yeah, That's that, was, a, that was an amazing kind of, oh, okay. Uh, and, and WD-40 didn't the help. The WD-40 didn't help. <laughs> How long did you work on the show? I mean, you, you were doing it still 20 years later, weren't you? I basically worked on it up until 2000, uh, 2006. They decided to bring in a, a committee of rearranging chaps. Um, the rearrangers. Yes, something like that. Um, <laughs> I did it up until up until the um, the Queen's Theatre thing where we used the, the Symphonia, the, 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 the first sequence-driven accompaniments to it, where we had a live orchestra, but a whole technology behind it you know to, yeah. to to provide the whole the whole thing and then and and as i say they they decided to to rearrange it and funnily enough they, they did a lot of rearrangements that the public didn't like so they ended up putting a lot of it back so, so john would you recommend a career in music to to everyone if you want to do it i think it's one of those we we have people for work experience who say should i go into the mu- the music business and you go if you're asking the question, no. If you say to me, I'm going into music business, great, do it. The, the, the young generation of writers and whatever are perfectly able to take over from us, except I don't want to stop. Well, we've torn up the format a bit with this episode, gone on a lot longer than usual, but what the hell, it's my show. And I thought you'd enjoy an extended wander through John's fascinating career. If you did, please uh, remember to rate the show, like or comment if you can, wherever you get your podcasts, as all those interactions help us get seen by other potential listeners. And if you're on Spotify, go and have a look under Here's One I Made Earlier, John Cameron, for a playlist of some of John's greatest hits. That's it for season one, but we'll be back later in the year, so please subscribe so that you don't miss our next series of encounters with some esteemed musical creators. Until then, bye-bye.